Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why life is better lived in the American West. I'm Frank Spring. I'm recording uh, this from the mountains into a handheld device, uh, like a ship version of Kyle MacLachlan's character from Twin Peaks. Uh, this week, uh, we're doing a little uh, different thing for Taking Ship. Uh, uh, Ellie's and my schedules didn't uh, match up well enough for us to even be able to record an episode together this week. So each of us is uh, recording something for of our own thoughts. Uh, normal schedule uh, or normal programming will resume next week. Uh, so for those of you who are came for a normal taking ship episode, uh, it, it gets a, it gets more normal next week. Uh, this week is going to be a little bit high concept, so bear with us. Hey folks, Ellie Jacobs here. As you just heard from Frank, we're trying something a little different this week to ensure that y'all are getting your taking ship fix uninterrupted by our uh, personal little crazy schedules. As always, we want to thank everyone for their comments, both positive and negative, and ask that you rate us and leave a review on the iTunes store. If you have time to tweet, you have time to leave us a review. Much like our president, we subsist mostly on fast food and compliments. So please, leave us that review. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in proprioceptive. For fear of making him more nervous than Kamala Harris did, we're not going to discuss Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, or as we've taken to calling him, Trebo. We're not going to talk about his testimony this week. There's just really nothing to add to it, so why bother? Uh, just a brief note on the war on the war on corruption. We're going to turn the venal pack spotlight off for the week, um, particularly in light of the tragic shooting at the GOP baseball practice earlier this week and the fact that uh, Leader Scalise is still in such critical condition. Um, we'll call this the Father's Day truce, similar to the Christmas truce of 1914. This despite the fact that our president was unable to go even 24 hours without castigating his former opponent. This gives you yet another reason to tune in next week, as we're sure to have someone to brightly shine the spotlight on by then. A couple thoughts I want to just pass on before uh, we get back to Frank's uh, um, take from Colorado. Um, The first is there was an AP poll this week, and there was one thing that really caught my mind. Um, There's some 68% of the country right now that thinks that Donald Trump was somehow, Donald Trump or his campaign was somehow involved with Russia um, in the lead up to the, during the campaign and uh, lead up to election day. Um, The question is actually, how concerned are you about the possibility that Donald Trump or others involved with his campaign had inappropriate contacts with the Russian government during last year's presidential campaign? Now, it's at 68% now, and that is up uh, about 10 points from uh, March. So, this is getting worse and worse for this White House, and they're not doing anything really well to get themselves to back away from it. Um, and I don't really want to give them any really great advice on it, but we'll get to that. A couple ideas in a second. But a couple other things to note this week. Uh, everybody's lawyering up. It's really just the cool thing to do. I mean, even that dork Mike Pence got himself one. So, you know, everybody's. it's time for everybody to do it. Um, the other thing I want to quickly mention is this week there was a new... Uh, bill passed to strengthen sanctions on Russia and Iran, and there was a lot of talk that uh, the GOP senators were going against the Republican president because they were backing this bill that he was opposed to. He didn't want to strengthen sanctions on Russia. That's part of the whole thing this whole time that everybody's been scratching their head about is, how in the hell has this guy not ever said one bad thing about 
Russia or Vladimir Putin, but he can't go more than a sentence without saying something bad about Democrats. So it's a little strange that we're in this bizarre world where it's un- it's unnatural for GOP senators to take a hard line on Russia. It's like Ronald Reagan's just rolling around in his grave. It truly is bizarre times. Um, but getting back to the White House, not since Britney Spears have we as a nation watched someone crack up before our eyes. But based on the president's tweets uh, this morning, it may be coming. So uh, buckle up, folks. Um, you know, a cu- couple quick thoughts about the White House and what they could or should be doing. Uh, the first is get this guy to stop tweeting. Um, I don't know how exactly they're going to do that without cutting off his small little hands. Uh, but supposedly with Melania in the White House, there might be more control or maybe just better syntax and uh, spelling in those tweets. I don't know. But the tweets themselves are not helping anyone. I mean, Steve Bannon's idea is that you just harden the base as much as possible and then you're going to win somehow. But his base is shrinking by the day. You know, he's at 38% approval rating and. of Republicans disprove of him, which is a staggering number at this point. Republicans generally will take any kind of guff from their president. So get him to stop talking and get the White House to stop talking about it. I mean, they appointed this lawyer and the lawyer has a spokesperson. And the idea was to get it removed from the briefing room and removed out of the White House, which means that no one in the White House should be talking about it, period. Everything should be directed to the spokesperson and and the outside lawyer. And until they do that, this is going to remain the White House's problem and stymie their attempts to do anything else. Final thing that they should really do, and none of this stuff is really rocket science, but the other thing that they should do is find something that they can get consensus on and work with everybody and get a big bill that everybody thinks is a good thing done and do it soon. And that does not include this piece of shit health care bill, which at this point the Republicans are still not showing to the public. They're still doing it behind doors. They're not involving Democrats. And apparently this week the president told a group of GOP senators that the bill, that the House bill was, quote, too mean. How do you think that makes all those House Republicans that he's counting on for their support, that he begged and pleaded and prodded to get them to vote for this bill? They didn't vote for the bill because they thought it was good. They voted for it because the president asked them to and you know pushed and prodded to get it done. How exactly are they ever going to trust or listen to him or back something that he's pushing for again? It's almost like he used his one big dare on something that was a piece of shit, and now he's basically screwed. More importantly, the House members are pissed about this. So if these are the folks who could potentially bring impeachment charges, these are not the people that you want to be pissing off, particularly over something like this that was a doomed bill to begin with. You know, just let let the GOP Senate kill the bill, not pass it, not get it past the floor, and maybe everybody can start talking about it again in 2018, but just get on with it. Um, it you know, it's interesting that, that there was uh, about 200 Democratic members of the House and Senate filed a lawsuit about the emoluments clause this week. Uh, to me, this represents a phenomenal opportunity for a lot of moderate Republicans who may be in fear of their seats, either because of the House health care bill or they're in one of those 10 seats that Hillary Clinton won, but Donald Trump, uh, that, but Donald Trump won the election. Um, join the lawsuit. It just sort of makes sense. I mean, we're all pretty positive that he's in violation of the emoluments clause, and there's no reason, there's no reason to not do it. You're going to look a lot better for your constituents and make it more difficult for your Democratic opponent to uh, target you as a Trump sympathizer and sycophant. So get more people on this bill. I think it's really just a good idea. Um, and the last thing that I want to just mention really briefly, um, and then we'll, I'll turn it back to uh, Frank because he has some really interesting things to say. Um, there's no reason that the House and the Senate can't pass a joint resolution pro- pro- proclaiming America great again. 
just pro- proclaim America great again. Uh, do a big signing in the Rose Garden, you know, have him with his big big pen in his tiny hands and sign it, and he can hold it up for all the cameras, immediately followed by his resignation. I think it's really just the only way that that, that thing should go right now. Um, but in the meantime, we'll be back again next week together. Uh, we may have a guest. We may not have a guest. Um, I'll be down in D.C. for the Truman National Security Conference. Uh, Frank will also be down in D.C. We're going to hope to get together and record something, potentially grab a couple people from the conference and have them join us briefly. Um, but in the meantime, please, uh, obviously, please do subscribe and rate us and uh, leave us a review and follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship. And that's ship with a P and P as in prescient. Yeah, let's go with that this week. Uh, and with that, I'm going to turn it back to Frank and he'll close out this with this week's episode. Thanks for listening as always. And uh, please be sure to uh, check us out again next week. I wanted to talk very briefly this today about uh, roles, something I've been thinking a lot about in politics, uh, and and how roles guide so many of our interactions and our decisions in life. Most of our, our interactions and decisions in life even are guided by our professional and our personal roles. When we think about what we have to do and we think about how we interact with people, a lot of that is informed on how we have to act as a, or how we're expected to behave or how we expect ourselves to behave as a good spouse or a good parent a good professional, a good manager, a good employee, a good, uh, you know, and, and all the various other layers of identity, a good American, uh, you know, a good member of our faith, whatever, right? These, these roles help us define how we should act. And, and they're important. They give context and they allow us to be, they're, they're heuristics. They allow us to make decisions at, in a very, very complex world. And all of these roles that we play and that the people around us play, they all have lines. There are things that you're expected to say and things that you're not expected to say. I'll give you a brief and I think very trivial but very, but very illustrative example of this. Uh, I needed to use a friend's space for something. He had some space. I needed to store some things there. Uh, it made perfect sense, but it was his space. And so uh, I made the suggestion, and he, or he offered it to me. He knew I had a need for it. Uh, I took him up. I offered to pay him for the space, to rent it from him. Uh, that was a perfectly legitimate thing. It was his space. Um, I, it would have been presumptuous of me to assume I could have had it for free. But the nature of our relationship is also such that it would have been unusual and sort of unexpected if he had actually accepted that offer, which he did not. Uh, so he, you know, he offers. I accept. I offer to pay. He declines. It all works out. This was you know smooth and easy, and it was all got. And afterward, I thought everybody knew their everybody knew their lines. It, that interaction went exactly as we thought it would, and all of those things had to be said in order for our sort of our understanding of our relationship and how it worked and showing respect for each other in order for all of those standards to be met. So that's one example of what I mean by roles and roles having lines. It seems to me that one of the roles of clergy and faith leaders is another example is that they're supposed to know the right lines for these momentous occasions when no one else does when there's so much emotion wrapped up into it, wrapped up in what's happening that you just can't, as a person, as a sort of normal layman, remember your lines, uh, and that can be to induct an infant uh, or a child into the into the trend of the religious tribe. In this case, um, to join two people in, in what would be a, a theoretically and hopefully permanent union, uh, or to to mark the loss of a, a member of that tribe, which is a, a very big moment in any tribe. And by tribe, I mean a sort of larger family or community. Uh, and our, our political leaders and our aspiring leaders have lines as well. There are things that they can say, and what I want to talk about here today is uh, there are also more things that they can't say. So aspiring political leaders have lines. They can say some things, they can't say others. 
What aspiring political leaders can say is actually pretty open. Uh, there are lots of variations on how to be a winning candidate, what message you pick, what belie- you know, how you articulate your beliefs and so forth. What you can say is pretty open. Uh, and in particular, progressive leaders right now are absolutely all over the place on what our leaders can and should say. Between the kind of center-left neoliberal and a kind of invigorated uh, leftist, farther left, a pretty serious dispute in the, in the progressive political community right now about what our leaders can and should be saying. Uh, And the recent election in the UK tells us a little but not a lot about what leaders, uh, what the what leaders can and should say, political leaders can and should say in their in their uh, in their role as political leaders. So, for example, Theresa May knew her lines for her role and the role that she sort of assumed the role she thought the British people wanted was, and I say this not just because of the gender comparison, but because I, I think she was very much driven by the spirit as a kind of latter-day, somewhat softened version of, of uh, Maggie Thatcher, someone who understood and celebrated uh, the parochial traditions of England, specifically, uh, as well as the greater, and to a lesser extent, the greater United Kingdom, uh, carried some of the, the sense of pride as well of obligation of, of empire and international engagement, uh, but on the whole was a little less, uh, little less ostentatiously draconian uh, in the way that uh, the, in her relationship with austerity, I think that was essentially what Theresa May was betting that the British people wanted, uh, and and she knew her lines perfectly. Uh, it turned out the Brits did not want that, and uh, what has happened is that she has presided over the single greatest personal political catastrophe uh, of I think I think it's fair to say of, the, of modern Britain. I can't, or, and indeed, it's hard to look for hard to find a, a, an easy parallel in kind of the the big Western powers for a politician who has so single-handedly, without scandal, uh, destroyed their political fortunes so quickly. Uh, Corbyn, uh, for all of the some of the hand-wringing that we've seen on, on both sides of the Atlantic about him and his, his views and his policies, actually didn't say a lot that was too far out of bounds. Most of what he said, most of what he you know, articulated as what, what labor would do under his government was not too, was, was pretty standard. It was pretty left, but it was not out of the mainstream of kind of, you know, social democratic European beliefs, right? The election was much more illustrative on a question of what you can't say. And this is, this is what I want to focus on here in, the, in, in this very brief uh, recording. Uh, what you can't say, what a, what a political leader is not allowed to say is that category has, is narrower and it's been defined by political necessity. Think you can't say this if you want to get elected. And, and there have been countless historical examples of this. Uh, you know, you've, and, and some of them are understandable based on the political climate, and some of them historically you know, look a lot like moral cowardice. The inability to articulate a, a support for gay marriage, for example, is, is not something that I, you know, because it was politically dangerous, is not something that I think, well, a lot of politicians did it, and I think a lot of good politicians in the end, you know, some fairly worthy people did it. It's not something that anyone should ever be proud of. Um, so when I say what a politician can't say, I mean the stuff that you can't say that or you won't get elected. The interesting case from the UK was how Jeremy Corbyn fielded one of these on nuclear deterrent. Um, it is traditional for aspiring prime ministers, for UK political leaders, to be asked if they would use Britain's nuclear deterrent, uh, which is primarily Trident, the uh, submarine-based uh, nuclear deterrent, 
It's traditional for UK leaders to be asked if they'd use nuclear deterrent to defend, even to avenge, which is uh, related but different part of the deterrent uh, quality, if they would use nuclear deterrent to defend uh, or avenge the United Kingdom in the event of a nuclear strike by an enemy. Uh, And it is traditional to say yes. And the idea is that question, would you use nuclear deterrent, isn't really about nuclear policy, I think. It's more about asking... It's a signal for, do you, as, a, as an aspiring leader, value Britain enough to kill for it on a grand scale? And the question, the asking of that question and the, and the answering of, yes, I would, is as ritualized as any element of a Catholic mass. But Corbyn knew his lines, but he didn't say them. Uh, it's, he actually essentially declined to answer either, sir. It really declined to answer, would you use nuclear deterrent to defend or to avenge the United Kingdom in the event of a... Uh, of a serious attack, and he, he just he didn't ab- he didn't outright rule them out, uh, but he hedged. Well, I'd want to make sure there were no other options. I don't know what I would do, uh, and and it was it struck me even at the time as a surprisingly honest answer uh, and a surprisingly human one. I mean, I think anyone who can say with absolute confidence that they would order the death of millions of people, uh, it, it would just oh, absolutely, with you know, reflexively and casually. Uh, is definitely playing a role. It's a little bit less, it seems to me, a little cavalier for a decision of that kind of gravity. Uh, but it's traditional and expected, and I, and I wouldn't necessarily hold it against a politician who did it. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff of political necessity. And Corbyn just didn't say his lines. Now, he, this is not to say Corbyn, and he did this on, another, on a few other areas, and this isn't, but that was the, the clearest one to me. And it's, this is not to say that is the way, you know, taking these unconventional lines is the stuff of a majority government. Uh, you know, the more unconventional, the more, we lo- the more we go away from the traditional lines of political leaders, uh, the better we all shall do as progressives. And I'm not necessarily arguing that that's the position. What I will say is, that's, what I will say is for a long time, the wisdom has been that especially for a liberal or for a progressive, let's say, for a progressive leader to say no or to even decline to answer an enthusiastic yes, I would definitely use nuclear deterrent, would brand that leader as weak, brand that leader as somehow unpatriotic, would make that leader unelectable. That clearly did not happen. Uh, Corbyn's numbers through the election, his personal leadership numbers improved. They improved slightly. What happened here is Theresa May's numbers just fell through the absolute floor, and that's a, a longer conversation. We talked about that a little that last week. We can talk about that a little going down the line. Uh, but Corbin, Corbin's decision to answer nuclear deterrent the way he did and his entire refusal to learn traditional progressive leader lines and to say them did not torpedo his candidacy. Again, you can make an argument that this may that he may not necessarily be able to win a majority, but clearly he didn't sink the party uh, beyond all recall. And I think this is another piece of evidence that progressive leaders have more latitude than we think. And there's a growing body of evidence for this. There's actually fairly good data that suggests that uh, that progressives, and particularly elected progressives, tend to think that voters are more conservative than they actually are. Uh, so I think progressive leaders have more latitude than we think. The role of being a progressive leader on either side of the Atlantic uh, is, I think, more flexible, and the lines that they are allowed to say is, are more interesting and more compelling. I think the kind of rote consensus of you can't say, there are things that you used not to be able to say as a progressive leader that I think it's becoming increasingly clear that you can say. Whether they will win you the election, that's a separate question, but they will no longer make you absolutely unelectable. Uh, and my hope is that for those of us who are, for those of you who are listening, both of you, uh, who work in progressive politics, 
and this is something I'm taking very seriously myself, that we resist a kind of long-established and innate urge to go back to the familiar lines that we, our, our politics is about, progressive politics is about to become much more interesting. And I think, I hope that we will all resist the urge uh, to make it duller again, to restrict ourselves to the old familiar lines uh, simply out of habit. And so with that, I leave you, uh, but this couldn't be taking ship without a discussion of where we are going to take ship to. Uh, and this week, I'm happy to report that we are going to Iceland, and we're going for a very good reason. Uh, two things happened this week that were gra- gravely concerning. The first is that a uh, woman in uh, Silver Springs, uh, Maryland, a suburb, a suburb of D.C., was bitten in her own home by a copperhead snake, the only poisonous snake indigenous to the D.C. area. Uh, this is horrifying. Uh, they should not, copperheads do not usually go into people's homes uh, and bite them unprovoked. Usually you have to be out in the wild and disturb one in order to get it to bite you. So that happened. The other thing that happened was in Maine, a, another woman, she was out jogging, uh, she was attacked by a rabid raccoon and to preserve herself was obliged to drown the creature in a puddle. Now, look, I think we've always known that the day would come when we'd be bitten by poisonous snakes in our own homes and we would have to uh, drown feral uh, forest vermin uh, in order to preserve ourselves from their murderous assaults. That This is clearly not unexpected stuff, but I have to say I thought there'd be more time. Nonetheless, uh, the war of humanity versus nature is clearly entering a new phase of conflict, uh, perhaps even the end game, uh, and humanity is going to need a headquarters, and I strongly propose and urge Iceland. Uh, Iceland, by virtue of its location and its geography, uh, the biggest predator located there is a fox. Uh, there are lots of sheep, uh, but if we, but I think we could eat most of them early if we launch one massive and surprise offensive, really prevent them from gaining any kind of critical mass. Uh, and they're protected from predators of any size. Uh, we could simply wait this thing out and pursue our, uh, our, our war against nature uh, un- unimpeded at our headquarters. Very important. So uh, this week, uh, friends, we take ship now for Iceland and for victory over nature. 